Welcome to episode 63 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, what happens when thousands of outdoorsy people get together in one place? a city full of happy and healthy people. Then on today's top five list, we'll share the top five themes that have tree huggers, peak baggers, and hill hikers all excited. Next on the Summit Gear Review, you'll find out which knife replaced the heirloom that Josh has been carrying since he was a scout. On the Backpack Hack of the Week, you'll learn how to use your fuel can to track fuel consumption. And we'll wrap up the show with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, again, Mr. Emerson. All this and that's about it today on The First 40 Miles. Twice a year in Salt Lake City, Utah, there's a show that brings all of the outdoor gear manufacturers together with gear retailers. And really a lot of other uh, entities come to this show. It's called the Outdoor Retailer Winter Market in January and Summer Market in August. And you got to go for the first time last January. And then you went again in August. And so now uh, you've been three times because you just went to the OR show just a few weeks ago, the beginning of January. How was it? Well, of course, it was a lot of fun to be in the same room with people who are all like-minded. But... um It's also a great opportunity to see what new gear is out there and then to connect with people with whom I've only had an online relationship. And so I had a great chance there to meet with Liz from Snow Queen and Scout, which is a website that we've talked about on our show that really helps women to get out there and experience a backpacking adventure and just get outdoors. And then it's also fun just to see the theme of the outdoor retailer show. Usually the theme presents itself in the keynote speaker's address and that kind of opening event that kicks off OR for the week. And um, that's one of the things we're going to talk about today in our top five list. But overall, it was a fantastic show. Always high energy. Everyone leaves excited and exhausted at the same time. And why do you go to OR? Like, what is it that you're looking for as a, you know, the host of a podcast? Um, You're not a manufacturer and you're not a retailer. But why are you there? Well, a lot of times we get questions from our listeners wanting to know, you know, what's the perfect fill in the blank for this fill-in-the-blank situation. And so I go looking for answers to some of those questions, finding gear that matches what our audience is looking for. And then I also go looking for trends because I love to see patterns and ideas and pick them from all over the place, from the keynote speaker, from, you know, what this one company is doing or what I'm hearing some nonprofits talking about, just those themes that are bubbling up. And then the last thing is I go to connect because a lot of these people that I've met, like I said, online or at previous shows, they're there and I get to rekindle that relationship. And that's a lot of fun, too. Right. Like Liz from Snow Queen and Scout, we had only ever known her online, never even heard her voice before. (laughs) So it's fun for you to make those connections. Back to helping out our listeners. 
Uh, before you went to the show, one of our listeners said, I'm looking for trekking poles, but the problem is I'm a larger guy and I tend to blow out the connections between the segments of the pole. So they just wear out. So you went to the show with your eyes open for trekking pole technology that would be suitable for this guy that was going to put a lot more pressure on his poles than maybe other people would. And you found something, which was cool. It was great. And it's fantastic because you're talking to these people that are experts in this one thing, like trekking poles. Well, for today's top five list, we're going to go through the top five themes that you picked up as you attended the Outdoor Retailer Show. Kind of the, the things that bubbled up that were consistent across lots of different people at the show and, and that we're probably going to see a lot of over the next year from retailers, manufacturers, um, activist groups, and so on. Well, the number one theme was the idea of helping the next generation discover the outdoors. Every organization is always wondering in the back of their head, how are we going to be relevant to the next generation? And this is equally true with the outdoor industry. And the good news is that trees, dirt, sunshine, and fresh air are just as appealing to the rising generation as they were to past generations. So you've probably heard about the White House Initiative. It's called A Kid in Every Park, and it gives a free pass to every fourth grader plus their families to visit a national park or one of the 2,000 federally managed um, lands and waters nationwide. So really great things are happening at a federal level to get the next generation to experience the outdoors. However, one of the concerns was that just because every fourth grader gets a free pass to a national park doesn't mean that they'll actually have that experience. And so Parks for Kids was created. And parks4kids.info, that's parks4.info, is a website that uses crowdfunding to help teachers and schools get kids outdoors. So I love this idea because these projects, for the most part, are pretty small. I mean, a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars, and you can search by state and donate to a project that will affect a child in your state or even in your neighborhood. I mean, there are lots of projects on there, and they're all designed to help get kids outdoors. So if that's something that you feel very strongly about, here's your chance to contribute and help get an entire classroom of fourth graders outside. It's true, a lot of fourth graders might not live close at all to a national park. It could be a really long drive to get to the nearest national park. I'm thinking of here in the Portland, Oregon area, maybe the Mount St. Helens National Monument. That would probably count. So that's a couple hours away, I guess. But the closest national park, uh, several more hours probably. And so it takes some resources to get to the park. You know, it's not just the entrance fee that's the issue. So it's good that people are looking at that and trying to address that need. Um, I was also wondering, it seems like you always hear every generation kind of look to the rising generation and say, we always fill in the blank and the rising generation never fill in the blank. So, you know, we were always playing outside. We were always camping, blah, blah, blah. And the rising generation is never outside, never camping, never hiking. And I know that's kind of anecdotal. Um, did you see anything at the OR show that really had any kind of, I guess, data behind it to, to really see how the younger generation is relating to the outdoors? Well, it was interesting. The, um, the keynote speaker, Terry Tempest Williams, said, I want everyone who is 
under 40 years old to stand up. Just to kind of get an idea of, you know, is the outdoor industry aging or are we having kind of the next generation come? And this is just in the industry. It's not actual data from outdoors, what's going on on the trail. But more than half of the room was under 40 years old. So, I mean, that's the only kind of pseudo data that I have. And it was really great to see that it's it's not an aging industry. It's an, a very youthful yeah, young people are coming into these companies that are outdoor companies and, uh, you know, making their mark. So I'm going to extrapolate and say yes, that younger people are getting out on the trail. The number two theme at the Outdoor Retailer Show that I felt really strongly was the idea of preserving our collective narrative. It's kind of a buzzwordy phrase, but basically... It's really great to have a personal story that's carefully recorded in a journal, but there is real power that comes in collected stories, and they call this the collective narrative. That's when you see patterns start to emerge, and as we collect these stories of our experience outdoors, then we feel closer as a country and as a culture, and we connect. So I saw this happening with the National Park Service, and they're celebrating their 100th birthday this year, which is really exciting. But they're doing this, this thing called Find Your Park. The idea is to find your place in the American Parks Collection, which includes more than just national parks. It's the monuments and lands and waters to share your story that goes along with finding your park. And you can do this on their website We'll have the link in the show notes. It's findyourpark.com slash share. And you can browse the gallery of things that people have already submitted, find inspiration there, and then upload something that shares your park experience. And this could be anything from a photograph that you've taken in a park, a song that you've written, um, a painting that you did while you were in a park, a poem, a dance, a video, anything that you want. And they're trying to collect it's kind of the combined American experience in our national parks. We've been tossing around and brainstorming some ideas related to the podcast around this theme of the collective narrative. We think it's really powerful when we have stories because I think we can draw so much from stories rather than just, you know, one fact that's kind of isolated. You put it in a story and it's so much more meaningful and easier for us to understand and we've been kind of tossing around some ideas about how to get those stories from people with unique perspectives. So we're still tossing around some ideas, but uh, you'll probably see the influence of this theme a little bit, you know, later this year on the podcast. The number three theme that I saw at the Outdoor Retailer Show was, I guess I'd call it environmental tiptoeing. I don't know, does that sound too sneaky? But the idea of really being careful with the environment. I know this is a theme that is really, it's not new. It's been really intensified in the last few years. I saw it in the keynote speaker's address where she was talking about oil drilling in national parks. And as I spoke with the exhibitors there, a lot of them were talking about their factories and how careful they were. And even in the ways that some of the larger merino wool manufacturers treated the sheep that were providing the wool. 
these companies are drilling down and really trying to do the best that they can for the environment, for the animals, and at the same time provide a really great product. It's, it's a lot of pressure. And actually, a lot of the European companies have really high standards for environmental waste. They're very strict in Europe about this kind of thing. And they're also very proud of the way that they treat their land and their animals. For example, the company Loa, which makes hiking boots, has a factory right next to a pasture with cows and a stream. And it's just, it's this idyllic picture you wouldn't expect to have a shoe company or shoe factory right next to this beautiful pasture. So companies are learning every day how to manage their waste and how to tiptoe lightly on the land. And like you said, they're trying to drive that accountability and stewardship further and further up their supply chain. So it's not just about that their company headquarters um, makes donations to humanitarian efforts or something or conservation efforts. It's that they've gone to their suppliers and that, you know, their seamstresses are being treated fairly. But then they go to the materials and see that the animals from which the materials came are being treated fairly and that the factories are clean in terms of their their waste output and things like that, driving that as far back up the supply chain as they can. And then as we just mentioned on a previous episode, we have manufacturers even going the other way with that stewardship, like Patagonia with their Warnware tour. So even after the sale of the product, how do we keep it from being environmentally damaging. The number four theme that I recognized at the Outdoor Retailer Show was activism. And this really played out strongly in the keynote speaker's address for OR. Her name was Terry Tempest Williams, and she spoke about the importance of activism. And I kind of had this moment where I don't know, one of those sandpaper moments where I felt some abrasiveness, I kind of felt some friction. I don't relate to activists. I don't feel like I'm an activist. I personally would never chain myself to a bridge or go live in a tree or do anything that extreme. However, as I've had a chance to think about it over the last couple weeks, I've really had a different view of activism, that an activist is really someone who actively lives as they believe. So if you truly believe that public lands are important, then you are an activist just by using those public lands. That it doesn't need to be an extreme thing. It can be something as simple as hiking a trail that you love. So when Terry Tempest Williams talks about activism, she's clearly taking the road of political activism, political involvement, going to a courthouse when there's a hearing to say something about the topic, going to a protest, going to a demonstration, saying things online, uh, writing a book. So she is definitely taking a very active view of activism, uh, which I think fits well with the definition of activism. It's really uh, speaking out on political topics and, and taking a side. But I think you're right. There's room for people like you who say, well, it's, it's not my personality. I'm probably not going to be part of a demonstration or something, but I do have strong feelings about certain things. For example, uh, I feel strongly that nature is important and that we need to preserve it and that we need to 
to um, to be in it and experience it. And so for you, the definition is, hey, I'm going to actively pursue the priorities that I have, the things that are important to me. I'm going to be active in those things. So I think that's a fair definition. There's definitely room for the other definition. And I'm sure we have listeners who feel comfortable with identifying with that definition of of going out and making a statement and uh, staking the ground and saying what they think about a political issue that relates to to nature. Well, the number five theme at the Outdoor Retailer Show was the purpose of public lands. Over and over, I heard that our public lands are designed to make us happy. They're designed for us to have fun. They're there so we can play, to recreate. And these themes came up over and over and over. Like there was nothing that didn't sound fun about our public lands. They're there for us to use. And it was just a very strong theme that permeated the entire show. Here in the Western U.S., the vast majority of land is owned by the federal government. And there can be some kind of states' rights conflicts that go on because of that. Uh, But as I try to think about it, When we go backpacking, I mean, can you think of even one backpacking trip that we've taken that was on private lands? I can't think of one. Every time we go backpacking and nearly every time we go hiking, just day hiking, I mean, every once in a while we'll find a day hike on privately owned lands, like owned by a timber company or something like that. But it's almost always on public lands. So makes me grateful. There may be a lot of federally owned lands around us, but I use those lands as a backpacker. That's a good thing to remember come April 15th. We'll have to uh, yeah. pay our backpacking tax. <laughs> That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. Makes the pill a little easier to swallow. <laughs> <laughs> For today's Summit Gear review, we will be reviewing the Gerber US-1 pocket knife. Now, Josh has had the same beautifully carved knife in his 10 essentials for years. It was given to me by one of my scoutmasters. It has uh, a wooden handle, a nice large blade, and even a leather sheath. And that has had a home in my 10 essentials kit for probably a couple decades. And I think it was only a few years ago that I decided, well, yeah, I'm going to swap it out for a Swiss Army knife because the Swiss Army knife was just much smaller, much more compact. And then it was just a few months ago that I went even further, and I swapped out the Swiss Army knife for this Gerber US-1 pocket knife. And, of course, again, my reasoning was, ooh, it's even smaller and even lighter. (laughs) So as you can guess, this is, uh, I guess, what I would call a minimalist knife, because uh, I'm into that kind of thing. And uh, it's just a simple single-blade knife. So in terms of structure, the Gerber US-1 pocket knife has kind of a rubberized black and gray handle. It's a 30% glass-filled nylon with a rubber mold over the outside of it. It gives you a really good grip. It's not going to slip in your hand. Then the blade of the knife has jimping on the spine. Jimping is a series of ridges that are cut across the spine of the blade. So that's the non-sharp edge of the blade. And when you put your finger on there, that gives you a little more control and, and less slip. Yeah, typically you would put your thumb there, right? I guess it depends on how you're using the knife. Yeah, you're right, your thumb. And the blade itself uh, is mostly black, except for just the, the edge that's been sharpened. It's a drop point blade, which is the classic curved edge blade. It's a lockback knife, 
and it has a finger choil at the base of the handle. What in the heck is a finger choil? Yeah, we had no idea. We had to look that up. <laughs> so if you imagine the handle and you imagine where your index finger would go while you're holding the knife, so it's right next to like the beginning of the sharp part of the blade. So you don't want that finger, that index finger, to slip off the handle because it's going to go straight to the cutting edge of the blade. So right there, they've made kind of a dip in the handle so that your index finger rests securely in the handle and doesn't slide off. Brilliant. So as far as utility goes, the knife has a thumb grip, or some people call it a nail nick, in the center of the spine. So it's not too far down. It's really easy to grab. It also has a lanyard hole on the very bottom of the handle. It's a little bit too small to put a like an S-beaner or a carabiner through, but you can probably attach some cordage through it and then attach the carabiner to that. So it's funny, as a side note, a couple of weeks ago, someone uh, gave us a kind of negative review on iTunes on Aww, our podcast. Oh, sad. <laughs> Every once in a while it happens. It's and, good for us. It's good. So anyway, one of the things they said was that apparently the only thing that's important to you with knives is whether or not it has a way to attach it to your pack. Oh my goodness, yes! They're right! (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't want to dig through my 10 essentials to pull out a knife. I love having it attached to the outside of my pack. So, right on. Yes. Yeah, so that just goes to show that every backpacker has their style and the set of things that's important to them. My knife is always in my 10 essentials kit. I pull out the kit, I open it up, I pull out the knife. I rarely use it, to be honest. But to you, you want your knife on the outside of your pack, right there, ready to grab. Yeah. And one of the things that I really love about this show is that we both have different ways of doing things. And our listeners have such wonderful, unique ways of doing things, too. And I love this kind of sharing how we do things on the trail. Yes, definitely. Having an accessible knife is important to me. Yeah. So if you can hike your own hike, you can pack your own pack, too. Choose your own gear. (laughs) I love it. Well, for mass, this knife weighs one ounce, which is perfect. That's why I chose it. I went from my large sheathed pocket knife with the wooden handle that was probably, I don't know, five ounces, six ounces. Yeah, and large down to my Swiss Army knife, which was probably still two or three ounces. And now this one, oh, it just feels feather light. It's amazing. Well, the blade length is 2.6 inches. The overall length when the blade is opened is 6.1 inches and the closed length is 3.5 inches, and I hope the math all adds up on that. (laughs) This knife is just thin and lightweight, and the only maintenance you're going to need to do is probably just WD-40. Just keep it clean and dry. Uh, Let me chime in. Uh, One of our listeners a few weeks ago suggested, since it's likely that you're going to use your knife for cutting food, instead of WD-40, you can use uh, food-grade oil, you know, cooking oil or something like that to, uh, to kind of clean it up. Oh, I like that. That should be our backpack hack of the week this week. That'll be the bonus hack for this week. Uh, For investment, this knife is reasonable. It's $25, plus it has a lifetime warranty, plus it's made in the USA. It doesn't get any better than that. A couple weeks ago, we ran through five different knives from Case, and uh, I said that, you know, one of those five would probably be my favorite out of that set. It was the executive knife, or it was also called the carbon lockback knife, and So if I compare that one to the Gerber US-1 that is the one that's actually in my 10 Essentials kit, you know, why did I go with the Gerber US-1? Well, I felt like that case knife was almost too small. 
it starts to get a little tedious if it gets too small. And I feel like the Gerber US1 knife is really comfortably small for me. Like it's still large enough that I feel comfortable slicing through some food or, uh, you know, anything else I might need to do that I'm, my hand is going to stay on the handle really well and I don't have to like get out a microscope to use my pocket <laughs> knife. So I've been really happy with the size of the knife. Um, and as I said, the weight is just outstanding. I love that. And the hand grip has been really good to hold on to. And the other big selling point of the Gerber US1 for me is the price difference. We're talking $25 instead of, was it uh, $90? I think so, yeah. Somewhere around there. So big difference. Here's a knife that's really not very expensive uh, that feels just right to me, super light. It's been performing really well for me. Like I say, I'm a light user of knives. So it's not like I have done some you know, repetitive cutting tests with this knife and can tell you just exactly how many tent guy lines you can cut through before you need to resharpen it. <laughs> Um, I'm just not that kind of knife user. Every time I pull it out, it's been working well for me and it feels good in my hands. Well, I think it's great that it has some of those details that you would expect in a much more expensive knife, but you have it in this $25 knife. So if you're a minimalist uh, like me, check out the Gerber US1 pocket knife. It's just right up my alley. If you're not a minimalist, if you're more of the multi-tool type, you might want to listen to the review that we did of a couple of different Leatherman tools in episode 54, or you can run through the whole list of case knives that we shared in episode 61. For today's backpack hack of the week, scratch your can. Well, you know that old commercial, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? Do you remember that from like the 80s? Wow. No. This, you don't? Oh, this little kid. It's like a cartoon. You can look it up okay. on YouTube. We'll have to watch it. He walks around with a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop and starts asking all these different forest creatures, I think, uh, how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop. Well, some engineering students at Purdue University made a licking machine that took an average of 364 licks to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. And then, not to be outdone by a machine, 20 of the group's volunteers took on the licking challenge. And you want to guess how many licks it took them to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? I don't know. Were they more or less efficient than the machine? They were more efficient. Only 252 licks as opposed to the machine's 364. Wow. So anyway, I was just thinking about this commercial as I was thinking about how many minutes does a fuel canister burn? A lot of us like to use these little fuel canisters. And the question in the back of our mind is, when is it going to run out? How much is left in there? How many cups of water will this canister boil? And no one knows. Right. If I'm going for a one-week backpacking trip, and I'm going to be cooking for breakfast and dinner, how many canisters do I need to bring? Right. And then on top of that, there's this variable of weather. Like if it's really cold, you're going to be using more fuel. Yeah. The reason nobody knows is because there's so many variables. Uh, the temperature, the wind, the initial temperature of the water when you start heating it up, the altitude at which you're burning the fuel, and the stove that you're using, and maybe the pot that you're using. And whether there's a lid on the pot. I mean, there's so many variables that are going to affect this. And it's going to be not only different for every different backpacker, but it's going to be different on every trip that you take because of those environmental changes. So we have a little tip for you. And that is, 
to start taking notes. And you can actually do this on your can in a really crude and simple way, just by scratching the paint on the outside with a safety pin, a diaper pin, metal zipper pull, or a knife tip. Uh, make sure you don't puncture the can. But for every cup of water that you boil, just make a little tick mark. And this will give you a really rough idea of how many cups of water you were able to boil with this can. And that might give you an idea with future cans, in future backpacking or camping situations, how much you'll be able to get out of a can. Now, if you want to take this a step or two further, you can also mark on the bottom of the can with a Sharpie and keep notes like, you know, maybe just write how many cups you boiled, what the rough outdoor temperature was, and if you were boiling from snow or if it was just water from a creek. Just some really simple notes so that next time you go out, you can have a better idea of how much fuel to bring. Yeah, for the data geeks out there, I can imagine a spreadsheet on your smartphone and you've recorded the uh, <laughs> the air temperature and the initial temperature of the water and, you know, how much water and the wind speed. And <laughs> I think we just came up with a good app idea right there. <laughs> Could you make an app for that? <laughs> I guess a certain type of person might buy that app. <laughs> but what you would do is learn from experience. As I said, every trip is going to be different. It's not like you're going to come up with a, an exact number and you're going to know for certain that with your particular setup, you will always get 22 cups of boiled water out of a canister. But you'll at least see a range. And depending on where you usually go for your trips, then I think you can start to have a better estimate just because of having tracked this for a while. You know, just track it on a few trips and you'll start to get a sense. You know, when I'm at higher elevation, um, I'm going to go through a canister this quickly. And when I'm down at sea level, I'm going to go this quickly or summer versus winter. And then there's also the option of not bringing a can at all, just eating stuff that doesn't require cooking. Going stoveless, like we talked about in episode 44. That's an option too. Well, we'll put a link to the Tootsie Roll commercial because I think that's a fun one. The Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop commercial. Yeah, find it on today's show notes, episode 63. So that's thefirst40miles.com slash 063. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Ralph Waldo Emerson. In 1860, he said, The influence of fine scenery, the presence of mountains, appeases our irritations and elevates our friendships. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter or review us on iTunes. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. a show that happens that brings all of the outdoor outdoor <laughs> outdoor gore manufacturers that's what i was trying to say deer crossing <laughs> great question josh <laughs> let me take about 10 minutes to think about that <laughs> a really great question <laughs> and then the last thing is and i haven't thought of the last thing yet <laughs> but, but you wanted three but huh? i wanted three because three is just a great number